dry. It is thirst that drives me to watch each dawn as meditation. My parched soul turned upward, attentive as a cup, banging on a rock for water. My whole life with this leaky chin. Hello, and welcome to our new podcast, Faith Outside the Box, where we share faith journeys that take us in unexpected directions. I'm your host, Jan Engmeyer. Daniel Shireen grew up in Waukesha, Wisconsin, a town known for football's first forward pass and the site of nuclear missile batteries during the Cold War. Dan graduated from Carroll University and Perkins School of Theology and has served churches in Oklahoma and Wisconsin. He's now the Bishop of the Northern Illinois Conference of the United Methodist Church. But he's also a poet, and his debut collection won the Haiku Foundation's Touchstone Award. Take us back to your childhood. You grew up in Waukesha, Wisconsin, a town known for the first forward pass in football and also as a nuclear missile launch site. How did your hometown shape you? It was a sort of a Mayberry RFD. Not that anyone remembers Mayberry RFD, but I do. My great uncle was a barber downtown. And so I remember even as a very tiny child going with my mother downtown to the stores downtown and going by the barbershop where uh, my uncle always had a, a group of people and the conversations and the sense of community uh, is very strong growing up and the and the presence of bazooka joe bubblegum always enticed me <laughs> uh, uh, some days i could uh, get grape or cherry i could pick some days he just encouraged me to be content with what i had so <laughs> so a sense of community and seeing the whole of it uh just from those uh early morning walks downtown uh are, are some of my earliest memories of growing up Tell us about your family and their faith when you were growing up. Uh, we understand one of your relatives was even a Methodist circuit writer. So on my father's side, they were Lutherans. And my baptism was in an old ALC, now ELCA church. That was the community closest to where we were growing up. Yet my mother's side uh, were Methodists. And there was always this shadow of a circuit rider uh, in the stories that they told about that side of the family. They were farmers, but this one circuit rider served from 1861 to 1903 until he became so elderly that he couldn't remember more than one sermon. So <laughs> they retired him. But the the presence of the stories about his preaching on what they called at the time social holiness, um, temperance, um, the, the kinds of uh, preaching and teaching in the church that would have social impact. The stories about that uh, were strong in my childhood. And so the, the, the images of faith always had this shadow of the circuit rider and, uh, and, and that story. Uh, in the background of my own growing up. So, so that, that had was, quite a pull on you. It did. It did. It captured my imagination. They, 
found an old journal that he uh, had uh, left. And one of the stories was that in the wintertime, his wife had heated a rock in the fireplace and they carried it out on burlap and put it up in the buckboard so that he could warm his feet as he took the buckboard to Minocqua, which is in the farthest reaches of northern Wisconsin, so that he could preach there. And so this, this image of such dedication and, a, and people who were mission first, um, that, was, that was a challenge and a good challenge to be raised up against. Very inspiring. So in many ways, as you previously referenced in Mayberry, uh, Waukesha represents kind of, uh, quote unquote, old America, uh, mostly rural, mostly white. How were your values shaped there and how have they changed since then? So I think probably many of us can go back to formative moments in life. And my values, as I said, started with a strong sense of community. But my parents divorced when I was a boy. And at that time, that was a shockwave for Mayberry RFD. And so I also remember uh, that shockwave and the bumper sticker placed on your family uh, that, that put you in a, in a second position, if you will. And so the sensitivity to being an outsider is enormously strong in me. And so that that lens, I think, uh, has God has used for good, we'll put that way. And that sense of then having blended family and the and the ways that we make room for others. You know, life is making room for other people. Uh, and and so that's a that's a constant learning when you're growing up, especially when you have blended families. So, so I think those values about the outsider and about blending are strong. And as I get older, I see their impact on me more and more. You heard the call to ministry when you were 17 years old. Uh, yeah. Describe that experience for us. Oh, gosh. So that morning, I was filling out the ACT, and they, they wanted to know what your vocation was. It was Sunday morning, and I thought, Maybe I want to be a, a fly swatter at a pesticide factory. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to work very hard. I, I, I want to be rich. I don't, I don't really care what I do. But in the middle of my musing about that, my stepdad said, well, come on, it's time to go to church. So we went down to the little three-point charge in Concord. It was a, it, a little farm church. And uh, the pastor was on vacation. And I thought, oh, no, we've got a guest preacher. I'll never get out of here, you know. So this uh, this uh, well-retired pastor ambled in. His name was Milton Leesman. He had he had served that church in 1927. Oh my goodness! Yes, as a student. I and here I was in I think it was 1979 or 80, and uh, he talked. He he opened the scriptures and talked about the body of Christ about how every member is of sacred word, about how the eye cannot say to the hand, we have no need of you, and how all contribute. And he began telling stories about how grandparents of the people in the pews had sustained him and lessons that were taught to him and how those lessons make Christ known. Well, 
I've, I cannot tell you the sense of awe that I had and the sense that I was being called to give my life to this, to be part of a body that makes Christ known in the world. And it captured my moral imagination, but it was too much for me. There was joy, but I was not a person who saw myself in this role. I didn't want to study religion. So I left the service of worship and I walked back to the farm, sort of bargaining with God. And you know how those bargains go. (laughs) God always wins. (laughs) I was 17. I didn't know it was futile. (laughs) But I never turned back. I had a lot of teasing. You know, when you're 17, people call you Moses and stuff like that. But uh, it's been a profoundly good life. And I'm so grateful for the calling. It's it's a it's a daily part of of my identity. So you received your uh, MDiv from the Perkins School of Theology. Did seminary fundamentally alter your faith and also how you read and understand the Bible? Yes, I was so blessed with my experience. I was a student pastor on the weekends, so I would test on the weekends what was pastoral care and. What was homiletical work and what was ordering the life of a congregation like? And so it was a wonderful uh, application of what I learned. And I, I was gifted with some of the most profound biblical scholarship and theological scholarship that I could imagine. And it just took me to deep places, deeper than I had ever considered. And uh, I'm so grateful for the the invitation to go deeper uh, in in a theological reflection about uh, liberation for uh, persons uh, who are not commonly at the tables of power. So I I was uh, receiving uh, process theology, how the universe is open and and, and the world is relational, and we make. Uh, Choices moment by moment uh, that God is with us. In that I was shaped by liberation theology that that God is in the world uh, uh, as an advocate for the ones who are powerless. Uh, I was shaped by the location uh, in a in a in a city in Dallas that uh, had a strong Latino spirituality to it. So I I am grateful that that reading continues in my life. I I read theology every week. And I think it uh, primes the pump uh, when I need it. <laughs> well, it's good to keep learning, right? And understanding. Yes. And uh, that's yes. why we all go to church. And we, yeah, and we yes. need our church leaders to, uh, to keep, keep doing learning. that too. Yeah, hmm. absolutely. So you also served churches in Oklahoma and Wisconsin. Um, were there parishioners that you met there that made a mark on you? Oh, that's that's the gift of this life is that you meet profoundly good people and you take them with you. Uh, one of the early parishioners that impacted me most in Duncan, Oklahoma, was a woman named Lenora Snyder. She was a painter. And so she uh, you know, had a, a very practical side to her. So she was not shy with advice. I was a student pastor. So I arrived on the shores of that church when I was 21. And I needed the advice. But her daddy had been a Methodist preacher. And so she sort of said, well, this is first base, second base, and third base. 
And she taught me when I ran into conflict. Uh, it was a very conflicted congregation. And she told me once, uh, Reverend Dan, you can't hate people that you pray for. So it's time, it's time uh, in the middle of this conflict to increase your prayer life. And oh, that was impactful for me. And I hope, I hope that that impact continues. Um, I, I, I had so many uh, people who took me under their wing there. Troy Coker took me to breakfast on a Monday to undo the stupid things I'd done the week before. <laughs> <laughs> it was that kind of place. And then there were places I had deep, deep theological disagreements in northern Wisconsin where I served. And a mechanic took me out to lunch one day and said, you know, I, I don't agree with just about anything you say, but I love Jesus and I love this church. And I just want you to know, uh, I think Christ is greater than our differences, but I'm sitting there practicing that every Sunday. Oh my, it's a humbling thing when people show you uh, their love and their desire to be faithful. And, and so, yes, I've got a, a great number of, of witnesses who are my cloud of witnesses. That's wonderful. We all need those. Do. So, <laughs> tell us about your wife, Julie. How did you meet? <laughs> so this is so funny. I, it, it goes against the grain to think about it, but I met her first by reading her poems in journals. So I did not meet her in person for a while until after I had become acquainted with her voice. And so it's a fascinating thing uh, to see, oh, this poem and that poem and this poem and a person's voice, uh, what they choose for their images, what their life, uh, what they reveal of their life, etc. So I met her first in, um, in poetry journals uh, and got to know her life then. And we became friends. And so that, that, uh, that knowledge then grew and grew but I met her first on pieces of paper, as strange as that might seem. Yeah. She's a fascinating poet. She's an excellent poet. Well, as are you. And then the two of you have two children, right? So I've got uh, two children, and she has three children from a first marriage. And so uh, together, uh, we're also uh, learning how to be grandparents. And so one of the uh, joys of that is we've got um, three uh, from one child and one from another. They're so different and different ages. And so it's kind of fun. She was a an educator early in her life. So she is really knowledgeable in children's books. So our grandkids tell us, Grandpa, we can count on you to get us uh, at Christmas or birthdays, uh, always a book and then something good. <laughs> <laughs> so we love to read to them and, and tell stories and like that <laughs> so it's great to be a father but it's more fun to be the grandfather right absolutely yes what a blessing yes all those children so you read one of your poems at the beginning of the program here um what inspires your writing and how did you get started with the writing. Yes. 
That's so fascinating. I appreciate the question. So now, later in my life, I write multiple forms and kinds of poetry, but I didn't start as a poet. I, in 1994, I was serving in north central Wisconsin, and a 12-year-old girl was abducted and murdered near the church. And the search came out of that, um, was centered in the church building. And uh, I got to know the family and work with the family. And I had to process all that I was experiencing. And I, as a pastor, I couldn't uh, lean on my parishioners. I, I went inward and I began to write. And, it, you know, you can write lots of bad stuff and uh, condense it down. And usually a word or two can be scintillating, but there's a lot of bad stuff. But for me, in the beginning of writing poetry, it was just processing, come into inner truth, discovery, what's going on in your soul, reminders of how we're shaped by events. So I started writing in 1994 as a result of dealing with tragedy. And then I just began to experiment with different forms. And and so now today, um, I write it as a part of my practice in the morning. I do Lectio Divina in a psalm every, every, every day for years. I open my life with a psalm. I look at the sunrise and watch the dawn as a sort of meditation. And, and then I land on an image uh, or I'll open another poet and I'll land on an image and write about what, what does door mean today? What do eggs mean today? Where does that go? And uh, one poet said the first line comes from the soul. And so after I write, I look at what, how did I start that poem and what did it say about my soul? So I write all kinds of poetry now, and I try to center in on images that, that uh, reach me deeply, hoping that the images reach others, and uh, to write forms that uh, bring, bring a peace if I can. So something good came out of something horrible. Right? Yes. Yes. And it also sounds like it triggered your sense of wonder. So if you can look at a door and write a poem, that's kind of remarkable, things that we take for granted every day. Yes. So doors, Jan, take me to a barn door. There's always a door. In our childhood, there's always a tree. And there's always a door. And so in my in my growing up years, there was the barn door that if you didn't put a block down in the bottom of it, the wind would catch it and it would flap all night long. And so if it was cold, you had to go out there and block that door. <laughs> you didn't want so to do that, right? Didn't want to do that. So the barn door and uh, all of the memories associated with entrance into that barn and leaving the barn and the end of a day hanging. Look at what conversation about a door can do. So your current role is as bishop for the Northern Illinois Conference. Yes. Kind of a difficult time in the United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. um, how will the faith that you learned as a boy in Waukesha help you guide our conference? I appreciate the question. I just think that that learning of how to blend family uh, is strong. I look at tables of for inclusion, I look uh, for our life together 
uh, to bless community. I have that uh, eye for the outsider. And I, I, I've been deeply shaped by Martin Luther King Jr. And his, his line, one of his lines was, beloved community is the framework for the future. And I would change that a little bit. I'd say, beloved community is the framework for the present. And I think beloved community is the only framework that has the capacity to heal us. So I'm looking for that and trying to live toward that. And that's difficult these days. I also think I've been surprised, I'll tell you, that every room you walk into, people have their cups turned upward and they want to be faithful. They really want to be faithful. And they don't want um, uh, someone to bring them a program or an organizational structure. They want someone who can pull something from the well of Scripture that can bring a sense of hope and vision. And if there's a sense that uh, the leader has hope, hope is a superpower. If, if the leader is hopeful, why then perhaps we can set aside uh, the things that vex us. So I, I think the role of pastor, something I've lived into since I was 21, is, is excellent training for uh, somebody who's given oversight of the whole. And uh, so, so that, that's what informs my sense of vision. And I'll continue to learn people's names and learn personnel and all of that. But that sense of vision, I think, is, is key to it. This goes back to your stories of uh, parishioners from uh, previous churches. The mechanic who said he, he disagreed with almost everything you said but the love of Jesus and the love of God and the love of neighbor is what brings him to church. And, and your uh, former uh, woman who said, you cannot hate people that you pray for. So those are great influences have to be on your current role. Yes. So I think this is what you learn over time is that it's deeply satisfying to live in the unity and peace of Christ. It's just not as satisfying to fuss and fight and make conflict. It's just not as satisfying. But when we have the, the life together uh, that, that, that engenders the fruits of the Spirit and these great people, they come then out of the woodwork. We know when you're conflicted, everyone runs off the deck of the ship. But when you've got a, a chance to cultivate life together that lives into beloved community, the best of people emerges. And we see each other with those eyes. So I, I just, I'm, I'm hopeful because, yes, I've had wonderful mentors. And I think, again, this is Providence. God uh, uh, is shaping me in ways that I could not see at the time. Bishop Shireen, thank you for letting us walk with you on your faith journey. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, leave us a review, and most importantly, tell your friends. Go to gcbm.org for all the links. Faith Outside the Box is a production of the Greater Chicago Broadcast Ministries, a communications ministry of the Protestant, Orthodox, and Episcopal Churches of Greater Chicago in cooperation with the Council of Religious Leaders. I'm Jan Engmeyer. May peace be with you. Vocation.
High beams visit a short night or dreams of fleeing down my beanstalk. The rabbit slips under a fence, waking my inner Merton. A branch tapping on the window calls me forward as the moon. <laughs>